Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 is our text for today. This is the 18th sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 38 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is The Chief Point of the Whole Bible. Turn to Romans chapter 3 as you do. Please keep in mind that God loves you. That should be somewhat easier for you to remember today since there is really good news in the passage today. And listen as I read chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, please enable us to see, to understand, to believe, and to love the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So many people say that this is the best passage in all the Bible which explains the gospel. I'm going to give you a very simple outline that we're going to be following today. It's four points. Point number one is the Bible that we are going to derive from verses 21 and 22. Point number two is the people that will be in verses 22 through 24. Point number three is Jesus that will be in verses 24 and 25. And then the last point, point number four, is going to be about God, and that will be in verses 25 and 26. If you would turn back for just a moment to Romans 1.17, there's a phrase in Romans 1.17 that I want you to concentrate on for several minutes, and it is the phrase, the righteousness of God. Uh, That phrase appears in our text today. It carries with it the same meaning that it had back in chapter 1, verse 17. But in 1.17, it says... For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when we studied that passage back in March in a sermon entitled The Do and the Done, we talked about the definition of the phrase, the righteousness of God. It's very important that we remember how we defined that phrase back then. It does not mean that God in and of himself is righteous, as if to say the righteousness of God that he himself possesses. Although he himself is perfectly righteous, that's not what it means here. Nor does it mean that he performs righteous acts, although God performs nothing but righteous acts. It's not what it means here. And it certainly doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we are called to live righteous lives and to be holy, although we are called to be holy, it's not what it means right here. I am on page three of my notes right now, page three. I want you to look at me, I want you to listen to me, I want you to pay attention, because what I'm about to tell you is very, very 
important. Again, Romans 1.17. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That phrase, the righteousness of God, in Romans 1.17 and in our passage today refers to a gift. It refers to a gift called righteousness, and that is perfect righteousness, which is credited to our record. And this perfect gift of righteousness, which is given to us by God, is something we receive not by doing good works or good deeds, but we receive it by faith in Jesus. Did you get that? I am on page three of my notes, page three. I need you to look at me and to listen to me and to pay attention. In Romans 1.17, it says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That phrase, the righteousness of God, as it appears in Romans 1.17 and in our text today, refers to a gift, a free gift from God called righteousness, perfect righteousness, which is credited to our record. And this free, perfect gift of righteousness is given to us by God and received not by us doing good works or good deeds, but we receive it by faith in Jesus. Did you get that? I'm on page three of my notes right now. I'm on page three. I need you to look at me and I need you to listen to what I'm saying and to pay attention because what I'm about to tell you is really important. In Romans chapter one, verse 17, Paul writes, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that phrase, the righteousness of God, as it appears in Romans 1.17 and in our passage today, refers to a gift, a free gift from God called righteousness, perfect righteousness, which is credited to our record. And this free, perfect gift of righteousness given by God to us is something that we receive not by doing good works or by doing good deeds, but we receive it by faith in Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you again, did you get that? Okay, so we don't have to do it again. Good. (laughs) After Romans 1.17 comes Romans 1.18. And from Romans 1.18 all the way up to Romans 3.20, Paul proves that God's wrath is resting upon us because we deserve it. Gentiles are guilty sinners before God, and Jews are guilty sinners before God, and everyone is a guilty sinner before God, that there is none righteous, no, not one. We were in this section for a long time, 118 through 320, 64 consecutive verses of bad news. But the good news starts today as we make our way through the book of Romans in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Now, as I stated earlier, most of the smart guys believe that this is the clearest, best gospel explanation in all the Bible. And thus my title today, 
the chief point of the whole Bible, and that is not original with me. That was something that Martin Luther said, that this paragraph right here is the chief point of the whole Bible. And so what we're going to do today is unpack the gospel under these four headings. The Bible, people, Jesus, and God. Point number one, the Bible, or the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. Let me read 21 and the first part of 22. It says, Romans 3, 21, But now the righteousness of God, that's that same phrase that's used back in Romans 1, 17. I hope you remember what that means, that free gift. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The first two words that we read in our English Bible are the words, but now. Now means now in this new gospel era as opposed to the old covenant law era. But now, now that Christ has come and died for our sins and has been raised, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That phrase, the righteousness of God, you do remember what that means, don't you? It is a free gift from God, which he gives to those who believe, a righteousness which is credited to our record. It has been manifested. In other words, it has been made known. It has been revealed. And Paul says, I want you to know that it has been manifested apart from the law. What he means by this, the law, that is the law of Moses, the Old Testament, apart from the law, means that it is not brought about in our lives by us keeping the law of Moses or us striving to obey the righteous demands of the law in our lives. The purpose of the law is not to make us righteous. The purpose of the law was to show us that we are sinners. And the perfect gift of God's righteousness is not obtainable through law-keeping. It is not obtainable by striving to do what Moses said to do in the Old Testament. However, Paul says, this does not mean that the Old Testament, the Bible, the Law and the Prophets, is altogether useless in telling us how we can obtain the free gift, the perfect righteousness of God. And that's what Paul means when he says, although, this is in verse 21, although the Law and the Prophets, that's the Old Testament, bear witness to it. So, Trying or striving to keep the Old Testament law is of no value when it comes to obtaining the perfect righteousness of God. However, Paul says, that literature, that, that Old Covenant, that Old Testament, that Bible does do something for you. And what it does for you is it testifies and says, if you are looking for perfect righteousness you have come to the wrong place. You will not find it by trying to obey what I command you to do. However, I can still help you because I will tell you where you can find it, and that is in the coming Messiah. And this is what Jesus meant in John 5.39, which is written on the wall of our education building over there. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. In other words, the point of the Old Testament is Jesus. Let me see if I can illustrate it in this way. 
You go into a store and you are looking up and down the aisles for an item that you need and an employee of the store walks up to you and says, can I help you? And you say, yes, I need a paintbrush. And the employee says, well, you have come to the wrong place to find a paintbrush because we don't sell them. However, you have come to the right place because I can tell you where to get one. People are coming in here all the time looking for paintbrushes, and so I'm going to direct you to the Home Depot. And then he hands you a brochure from the Home Depot and has a, 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 a large selection of all their paintbrushes, and he says, yes, if you go to the Home Depot, you will be able to get a paintbrush. And here's the address. It is 131-35 Avery Avenue in Flushing, New York. And if you want to call them, their number is 718-358-9600. I'm not going to be able to give you a paintbrush, but I can tell you where you would get one. You say, thank you very much. And you go back to the shelves and you continue to look for a paintbrush. You're not going to find one because it's not there. And he walks up to you and says, Sir, I don't mean to be rude, but if you're still looking for a paintbrush, you're not going to find one. And I realize the name of the store is The Men's Warehouse. That's a little bit of a misnomer. It might seem as though we have paintbrushes, but we do not. If you want to find a paintbrush, you've got to go to the Home Depot. In the same way, if you go into the law and you say, I am looking for righteousness. What is righteousness? It is a gift which is given, which we receive, not by doing good, but by faith, freely given by God. I'm looking for righteousness. Where can I find it? The law will say to you, you've come to the wrong place because we don't have it. You can't get it here. However, that same law will say, I'll tell you where you can get it. You can get it in looking to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. It bears witness to the free gift of righteousness found through faith in Christ alone. In other words, the Old Testament is about Christ. Now, notice how explicit and clear the Old Testament is in pointing us to Christ. At the beginning of verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ who to, for all who believe. Paul told us way back in chapter 1, verse 2, about the gospel. He says at the end of verse 1, Romans 1, 1, the gospel of God, and then he defines what that gospel is. And he says it has something to do with the Old Testament, Romans 1, 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, when you read the Old Testament, you are going to read about the gospel. It is pointing to Jesus and the gospel. And so, as I bring point number one to a close, here is your point of application. Read the Old Testament and look for Christ. Look for Christ, not that he would be the one that would tell you what to do and not do, but look to him as the perfect righteousness which is obtained through faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says that the righteous shall live by faith. That's in the Old Testament. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God. What is believe? Believe is faith. Abraham believed God, the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So that's point number one, the Bible. Now point number two, people. I learned something this week about Romans 3.23. I, I learned something every week that I study, but I learned something which was 
a little bit shocking to me this week. I would say, without exaggeration, in my 62 years of life, I have quite literally quoted Romans 3.23 thousands of times. I quote it every time that I share the gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I, I really could not tell you the number of times I have quoted that verse. Well, I think that the point of Romans 3.23, after studying the, it this week, is not to prove that all have sinned. Although it does prove that. In fact, it even does say that. But when you read Romans 3.23 in its context, I don't think that's the point at all. Listen to Romans 3.23 as it is put in context from the front end. Second half of verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point that he's making is that there is no distinction. In context, the point is that both Jews and Gentiles together, all, that is all types of people without distinction, have sinned. Now, it is also true that everyone without exception has sinned. But I don't get that from Romans 3.23 as much as I get it from Romans 3.10, which says that there is none righteous, no, not one. I think the point of Romans 3.23 is that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes to being guilty before God. There's no distinction between the Muslim kid who was raised in Iraq or the Baptist kid who was raised in Dallas. All have sinned and are literally in the process of falling short of the glory of God. The verb tense there is falling short. Now, it doesn't mean falling short of getting to heaven, although they indeed will fall short of getting to heaven. But that's not what it means here. What it means here concerning the glory of God is that we are missing out as a result of our sin on the original intention of God's design for us, and that is for us to be holy and to be happy and to be close to him. We are falling short of that, and that there's nothing we can do to restore that glory. Sin has disqualified us from reaching the glory of God. And remember, it's not a matter of who you are. Like it, 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 it is of absolutely no concern. Jew, Gentile, atheist, Methodist, Catholic, Hindu, irrelevant, 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 irrelevant. I learned something else about Romans 3.23 this week, and this is more important, and that is, I don't think that we are supposed to stop reading at the end of verse 23, because although it is true that all have sinned, I think that the emphasis in the paragraph from 3.21 through 26 is not our state as sinners falling short, although we do fall short, but the emphasis on this paragraph is to accentuate and to amplify the good news of the salvation which is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I, I will grant, and I will probably use in the future Romans 3.23 as a standalone verse which teaches that everyone is a sinner. It is still true. But in my opinion, I think Romans 3.23 is a subordinate statement that merely sets up a bigger and better and infinitely more important truth. And it is there to set up, by contrast, something which deserves more, more attention, and that is our salvation. Look at the greater truth with context in the beginning and at the end. Again, end of verse 22, for there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the bigger truth that it's pointing to. Verse 24. And, so there's a connector there. So there's a connector between 23 and 24. You know, just start a sentence with and. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? The emphasis here is not upon the universality of sin. It doesn't matter who you are. No distinction. All have sinned. But more importantly, all who believe are justified by his grace as a free gift. You see, Romans 3.23 is almost, and, and I don't want to downplay it too much, but it is almost a side note which gives a recap of our lost condition and sets up the greater truth of verse 24, which Paul wants us to see. You see, remember, we are in a section here that's dealing with people, all people, no matter who they are, even though they are sinners, they fall short. But here's the greater truth and the more magnificent thing that Paul is pointing to, and that is that we are justified by his grace as a gift. So here's sort of how I see Romans 3.23 with context. I think it's sort of like a volleyball game. Now, let me just say this. You never want to play volleyball with me. A couple of reasons. Number one, I never stay in my spot. I'm always running all over the court, and I will either hurt you or you will hurt me, but there will be a lot of collisions because I don't stay still. The other reason you don't want to play with me is because I'm a very simple player. You hit it to me, I just hit it back to you. That's it. That's it. It's just back and forth. But if you watch the young adults of North Shore Baptist, well, they have this elaborate system where there is, there is uh, the bump and the set and the spike. Well, you know what Romans 3.23 is? It's the set and the spike is verse 24. What's important is the spike and not the set. All have sinned and are justified. Boom! And are justified. Take that Boom! And are justified. That is the point of the passage. And so as we move on, notice, and by the way, this text today is just filled with vocabulary words like justify and redemption and propitiation and forbearance. A lot of big words in here. We'll get to all of them. First one here is justify. To be justified is not something that you do it is something that is done for you. And it is that you are declared righteous by God. All of the sins which we have have been wiped away and removed and forgiven in the record book of God. And we become possessors of the righteousness of God. Now you remember what that is from page 3. And it is earned for you, this justification, by the perfect life of Jesus and by the death of Jesus. And so when God justifies someone, and this is, this is courtroom language, he's not only declaring them not guilty, but amazingly, he is declaring them to be perfectly righteous in his book. And notice in this justification, there is a motive and a metaphor. His motive is grace. The unmerited, not worked for, unearned favor of God which he gives us. Why does he do this? I'm not going to be able to help you with this. I don't understand this. I cannot wrap my little simple mind around it. All I can tell you is he loves you. 
and you say, how does he love me? Well, he loves you by his grace. I cannot explain that to you. It makes no sense to me. There's no analogy. There is no story or illustration which is going to help you logically understand how God, for some unknown reason, chooses to love us even though we are his enemies and even though we deserve eternal hell. He chooses to love us And this is something called grace. It is unearned, it is unmerited, it is undeserved. It is favor from God which he mysteriously bestows upon his elect. And it is amazing. Somebody ought to write a song about that. Notice also that there's a metaphor here. Not only is the motive there, which is grace, but there's a metaphor. And it's a really simple metaphor, and he just says it's a gift. Well, by definition, a gift is free. You cannot work for a gift. You cannot earn a gift. How do I get this righteousness or perfect standing before God? How am I justified? How do I receive this free gift? The answer is by faith. And so I'm going to say this three times to you today, not in succession, but throughout the course of the sermon, I'm going to say this. Most of you, I know, most of you are saved. Some of you, I don't know. Some of you, are not saved. Those of you that are not saved, I think there's a possibility that you might be looking at this whole Jesus, God, church, salvation thing in the wrong way. You might be saying to yourself, what do I have to do? How can I work to obtain the good favor of God? You need to understand that it is exactly the opposite of what you think that it might be. There's nothing that you can do. It has been done for you. It is received by faith. It is not earned by works. I can say those English words to you, but I still think that you won't get it. It would be as if 25 years ago I was to say to you, uh, I'm having a baby, and you were to say to me, well, when is Anna due? And I would say, no, you don't understand. I'm having a baby. Then you might say, well, wait, that well, I don't get that. In the same way, when we talk about going to heaven and being right with God, and I say the righteousness of God, your natural reaction is to say, okay, what do I have to do? And the answer is, I'm having a baby. The answer is, you don't do anything at all. Well, just tell me, well, I understand, I, yeah, but what do I have to do? Nothing. There is nothing that you do. It is a free gift which is given by grace, and we receive it by faith. And that's what it says in verse 22, for all who believe. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. The only way to obtain it is to believe in Jesus. And so you see the punchline of verse 23 is not that all have sinned, but the punchline which 23 is setting up like a volleyball player is verse 24, justified by his grace as a free gift. And so as we bring point number two to a conclusion, I would say this, sinners, have you placed your faith in Jesus or are you striving in the eyes of God to earn his favor by good works? It can't be both. You will either rely on your good works to get you right with God or you will rely on the free grace of God the free gift of God through faith alone in Christ alone. Are you trusting in Christ? Which, speaking of, brings us to point number three, which is Jesus. How in the world did the God of grace justify sinners freely? 
How did he deliver this free gift? How did, how does the spike work that has been set up? In other words, what are the mechanics or the inner workings of the gospel? And the answer is through Jesus. And you say, well, I know that. Well, how does it work exactly? And we're told at the end of verse 24 and the beginning of verse 25 how it works. Let me read all of 24 and then into the middle of 25. And are justified by his grace as a, as a gift. Here we, here's the part about Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, here's how it works. First of all, it works through redemption. This is our second vocabulary word. The first one was justify. Second one here is to redeem or redemption. Redemption is a term that comes from the world of economics. Usually it means a price that has been paid to free a slave or a criminal or even a prisoner of war. And it carries with it the idea of being delivered or freed from bondage through a price that is paid. So, for example, Israel is said to have been redeemed out of Egypt. Well, how did that happen? It happened through a price. What was the price? The price was the blood of the Passover lamb. Likewise, the price has been paid for our redemption, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ or the death of Jesus Christ paid by Christ to God. So when we're talking about redemption, there is a financial transaction which takes place here whereby God is paid by Christ with blood or death so that we can go free. The currency is blood or death. This is exactly what it says in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so when Christ died, he purchased or paid for the redemption or the deliverance of his people. Now, let me get just a little bit technical for you right now. Not too technical, but let me explain something concerning why I believe what I believe. Uh, among Christians, there are basically two schools of thought. One would be a Reformed or a Calvinistic school of thought. Another one would be an Arminian or a free will school of thought. I am a Calvinist. As a Calvinist, I believe that Jesus died for the elect and that he only died for the elect and that he did not die for all people. There are many reasons why I believe this, but one of the main reasons why I believe this is concerning this idea of redemption. It makes absolutely no sense to me that Jesus would pay the price of our redemption to God the Father and if it was paid, then it was paid, and then God would turn around and damn us to hell. No, not at all. Those whom Christ redeemed on the cross with his blood will be in heaven. For a fuller understanding of this, and if you want to study it more fully, I recommend a book to you, but just let me give you a little warning on this book. It's, 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 it's pretty deep reading. At least it is for my little simple mind. And that is a book by John Murray entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied. If you want to understand it better, he says it infinitely better than I do. But the bottom line is that if Christ redeemed you with his blood, you will be in heaven. If he purchased you, you will be in heaven. Notice also 
We have the introduction of another really important doctrine here. It's kind of subtle, but it is, is just as important, maybe even more important, and that is that it is the doctrine of union with Christ. The redemption is in, I-N, in Christ Jesus. And so we are, when we are in Christ, we are joined to him, and the Father sees us. And this is another thing like grace, like I, I, I can't wrap my mind around it. But when we are in Christ, God the Father sees us as though we are just as righteous as Christ. And so when we ask the question, how in the world can a holy God look favorably upon me? Well, in a sense, he can't and he doesn't. However, if you are in Christ, he's not looking at you at all. He sees the perfection of his son, and you reap the benefit, or as the song says, God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. What else does the passage say about Jesus? Well, it brings us to this really big word, propitiation. Verse 25, he was put forward as a propitiation. What does that even mean? Well, as I studied the meaning of propitiation this week, uh, I really enjoyed studying it. I'm not going to be able to share everything that I uh, gleaned from my study, but I will leave you with three observations about propitiation. The first one is that for many, many centuries, there have been many interpreters who have read this word to mean mercy seat. And technically, they are right. Because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word helisterion translates mercy seat. And the image there is of the place in the temple or the tabernacle, which was known as the Holy of Holies, and the chest Inside the Holy of Holies, which was known as the Ark of the Covenant, had a lid, and the lid was the mercy seat. And the lid was the place where the high priest went once a year on the Day of Atonement, symbolically to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people and to make atonement, as we read in Leviticus chapter 16. Douglas Moo, who has written a commentary on the book of Romans, ties the whole idea of propitiation mercy seat together with the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I think he sums it up in a glorious way. Listen to this rather lengthy quote. Douglas Moo writes, by referring to Christ as this mercy seat, Paul would be inviting us to view Christ as the new covenant equivalent to the old covenant place of atonement. And Derivatively, there's a word that we don't use enough that we need to bring back into our vocabulary. Derivatively to the ritual of atonement itself. What was hidden behind the veil has now been publicly displayed as the Old Testament ritual is fulfilled and brought to an end in Christ once for all sacrificed, end quote. And and what Moo is saying here when he's talking about publicly displayed. Well, in our ESV Bible, it says, whom God put forward. Another way of putting it is the way that the New American Standard Version puts it, and that is, whom God displayed publicly. So there's the difference between the private and the public. The Old Testament atonement was done privately in a room where the priest could be by himself 
one day a year, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. That was done in private. Whereas in the new covenant, it was done in public on Calvary. So if the imagery of the mercy seat is right, and, and I think there is a lot of merit to that, it still doesn't answer the question, what does it mean? And here's where the theologians and the Bible commentators take two different paths, and this is my second observation, and that is that there is a lot of debate among good and godly scholars as to whether this word propitiation, which is how it appears in the ESV, should be propitiation, which is an appeasement of the wrath of God. Still another of our vocabulary words this morning, propitiation, an appeasement of the wrath of God. It means that God is angry at you, and he should be angry at you because of your sin and because of his holiness. However, instead of venting his wrath on you, He puts his wrath upon his son on the cross, and his wrath was appeased, and that is a very viable interpretation. There are others that say, no, it doesn't mean the appeasement of God's wrath. It's more like the word expiation, which means the atoning or the atoning sacrifice or the wiping away or the covering of our sins. Well, when I read the arguments of the smart guys, I see merit in both of them. And I want to tell you, I honestly don't know if it is an appeasement of God's wrath or an atoning expiatory sacrifice. Both of them are valid. Both of them are theologically correct, which brings me to my third observation, and that is I'm not going to tell you which one I think is right. Uh, I have an opinion as to which I think is right, but there's a reason why I'm not going to tell you First of all, I think that there is validity in both of them. Secondly, I want you to think for yourself. Third, I want you to get in your mind the idea of both of these things. I want you to be thinking about the fact of propitiation as an appeasement of God's wrath. And that is that God put his son to public shame and disgrace and agony, and then he poured out his holy wrath on him. And as a result of that, there is no anger left for those who put their faith in Christ. This is a beautiful picture. Do you understand that God literally does not have any wrath for you if he spent his wrath for you on Christ? God reaches into his pocket, pulls it out. There's nothing there. I don't have any wrath for you. Why? Because I spent it all on Christ. Some, some people look at this and they have trouble with this and they say, appeasement of wrath. Now that's a really, that's a, that's a really sinful concept. It's like a, a guy whose boss is mean to him and then he comes home and he takes it out on his wife and his children and he kicks the cat and he punches the wall and he throws the lamp. And that's, that's just, that's just, ungodly and is God like that? No, that is a horrible analogy because that is unrighteous anger. And besides, men who do that, at the end of that time, they're still mad at their boss and their wives and their children are crying and it never accomplishes anything. That is not propitiation. That is not godly propitiation. Here is godly propitiation. God is holy and he cannot have sin in his presence. He cannot look favorably upon it. So what he chooses to do, and he must punish sin, is he takes our sin off of us, he places it on Christ, and then he punishes Christ, and he vents his anger on his son for what we deserved. 
Once that is finished, and Jesus said, it is finished, there is no longer any wrath for God to bring upon his elect. If God all of a sudden were to say, you know, I know that my anger for the sins of Ed Moore, well, it was spent on Christ, but this guy is a special case. Like, he is really testing me, and so I'm going to turn from love, and I'm going to turn to wrath, and now I'm going to have wrath for Ed Moore. He could not do that. Why? Because all of the wrath was spent on Christ for all of my sins, past, present, and future. Friends, this ought to cause you just to ah, breathe a sigh of relief. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. God has got no wrath for you. It was all spent on Christ. He might be grieved, he might be displeased, he might in a loving way have to discipline you, but because of propitiation, he will never send his wrath your way. I also want you to be thinking about expiation or atoning sacrifice or a covering or a wiping away of the sins. That means that my sins are gone and they are covered and that they will never be remembered again and they will never be held against me and that they are permanently wiped away. When I think about me, I remember my sins. And I think, as a man, if I were God and I were looking at me, the way that I would be emotionally disposed toward me is, quite frankly, I would be very disgusted with me. And maybe if I did legal things to pay for the sin or whatever, I would have to say, okay, great, you can come into heaven or whatever. God, because of expiatory sacrifice of Christ, does not think about you that way. He looks toward you with love. All he has shown you is grace, love, and kindness. You will never know his wrath. He is not angry about your sin, and the reason he's not angry about your sins is because he has forgotten about them, and they are gone, and they are paid for in full. And you lay awake at night, and you think about the sins that you committed last year and the sins that you committed three decades ago, and it's just like, oh, what a worm I am. Yeah, in reality you are, but guess what? That's not the way that God thinks about you. It's been wiped away through the sacrifice of Christ. So let the Bible commentators duke it out. We're going to hold on to both meanings and, uh, and believe that Jesus paid it all. And this now is the second time I am telling you that this comes about by faith. Notice what it says in verse 25, to be received by faith. You cannot work for this righteousness, this justification, this grace, this gift, this redemption, this union with Christ, this propitiation or expiation. It is to be received by faith. So as we bring point number three to a close, I will say now to the sec for the second time, I think some of you are thinking about this the wrong way. I think that you're thinking that if you want to be right with God, you're something you think you have to do. The fact of the matter is, all you need to do is believe in Jesus, for whoever believes in him will not perish. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you received him as your personal savior? If you have not today, all you need to do is believe. Point number one, 
is the law and the prophets, the Bible. Point number two is the Bible. Point number three is Jesus. Now our final point is point number four, and that is God, speaking of God the Father. From the middle of verse 25 through the end of verse 26, this was to show, S-H-O-W, God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show, S-H-O-W, his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You notice twice the word show appears in these verses, and in both cases, what is it that God wants to show or demonstrate? It is his righteousness. Let me be clear. If God did not want to show his righteousness, he would still be righteous. If I have a $100 bill in my wallet and I don't show it to you, I still have it. If God doesn't show us his righteousness, he is still righteous, but he wants to show it to us. In showing it to us, he doesn't become more righteous, uh, but he just wants to reveal something of himself. And why did God think it was necessary to show his righteousness? Well, it is because of this peculiar phrase we find in verse 25, and that is, Because of his divine forbearance, there's another one of our vocabulary words, means that he is putting up with temporarily, he is being patient with, he is bearing with, because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We have forbearance for one another, but it has limitations. This is divine forbearance. Again, going back to me, if I were God and I were looking at me, I would have a limited amount of forbearance with me. But what does he have with me? Divine forbearance. And what he's talking about here is the sins which were committed, when it says the former sins, the sins which were committed by Old Testament saints, which were not paid for until Christ came. You see, it's sort of like a postponement. Not a cancellation, but a postponement. When a Major League Baseball game is postponed, it means it's going to be played at another time. But for now, it's not going to be played. A cancellation means it's never going to be played. Well, the Old Testament saints sinned. And if God did not pay for their sins, but sort of says, hey, you guys are grandfathered in, the cross hasn't happened yet, but you guys just come on come on into the kingdom... If he did that without an atonement, he would appear to be unjust. In an actuality, he would be unjust and unfair. And so these verses are saying God wants to be clear. He wants to do it in public. He wants you to know that sins which were committed by his elect in the Old Testament were overlooked for a time. But now when Christ came, those sins were paid for. And it looks like this. How was Abraham saved? Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. He looked forward to the coming Christ. How was the thief on the cross saved? Literally, he looked over his shoulder and literally he looked at the blood of Christ and the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. He was saved by looking at the dying Christ. How was Eddie Moore in September of 1977 saved? I was saved by looking back to the cross of Christ and believing that he died for me. And how is some guy 10,000 years from now going to be saved? 
the same way that Abraham, the thief on the cross, and Eddie Moore was saved, and that is by looking to the cross of Christ. God is publicly saying everybody from Adam until the last person who's walking on this planet who is going to be saved is saved in the same way, and that is through this display, this public display of Christ dying for them. So God is saying it is important for me that you know that I have dealt with all of the sins of my people on the cross. Now that little phrase there in verse 26, the phrase, this present time, I think it carries with it the same meaning as the words back in verse 21, but now, now in this gospel era. I think it refers to the time of Christ's death, the New Testament era, as opposed to the Old Testament days. In any event, it has one desired end, and that is that God wants you to know two things. He is just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ. Just, meaning fair or right or righteous or holy, and justifier, meaning the Savior. God manages to be just and fair and holy. How? By putting our sins on Christ at the cross and then punishing those sins with the death of Christ. And simultaneously, God is the justifier and he justifies us. How? How does he declare us righteous? By sending Christ to the cross to pay for our sins. In that one act, God becomes both just and the justifier. And you say, well, what if God just wanted to be just and he didn't want to be a justifier? Well, if that was the case, then we would all go to hell. And that would be justifiable because that's what we have earned. But if God only wanted to be just, then we would all be damned. Consider the angels that fell from heaven. Those who are held in chains under darkness waiting for the judgment of the great day, Matthew 25, hell which is created for the devil and his angels. Was there any attempt on the part of God to be a justifier of those fallen angels? No, none whatsoever. He only wanted to be just with respect to them, and that was his prerogative. However, when it comes to human beings like you and me, the offspring of Adam, God says, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to be just, fair, holy, righteous. And number two, I want to be the justifier. I want to be the savior. What if God just wanted to forgive us? In other words, he didn't want to be just. Because in order for God to be just, it's going to cost him something. It's going to cost him giving up his son. It's going to cost him killing his son. What if God says, I don't have any interest in being just, but I'd like to be the justifier, I'm going to let people into heaven. If God was not just, but yet he was a justifier, then he would not be just, and if he was not just, then he would not be God, for in order for him to be God, he must be just. You see, God wanted to be both just and justifier, so what did he do? He brought those two elements together in one place, in one person at the cross. And Jesus paid for our sins, which means that our sins are paid for, and therefore, since they are paid for, God is just. And Jesus paid for our sins, which means that our sins are paid for. What does that mean? That means that God is a justifier. He is simultaneously just and the justifier. For everyone, no. And here's the third and final time, as I promised you that I'm going to say this again, it is for those that believe. Again, verse 26, of the one 
who has faith in Jesus. Not everyone, but the one who has faith in Jesus. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you are not saved, and you will die if you die in that state, and you will be damned eternally. But again, look at the whole passage, verse 22, for all who believe. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus. So I think it's pretty clear that some people are thinking about it the wrong way. You're thinking that there's something you have to do. But three times in the text, Paul has said, believe, believe, believe. Look to Jesus and believe. You are not saved by your works or the keeping of the law. You are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. Let me give you two very quick closing applications. Number one, praise God for his plan of salvation. We ought to be praising him all the time for everything, for the food that we eat, for the air that we breathe, the fact that he takes care of us, that he made us, that he sustains us, that he loves us, that he's given us the church, that he's given us the Bible, that he's given us Christ, that our names are in the book of life. All of these things we ought to be praising him for. But we also ought to be praising him for the how it came about and thinking about it and loving God with our minds. Have you ever thought... I really need to stand in awe of God because of this brilliant plan that he designed to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Friends, you watch a lot of movies and you watch a lot of television programs and you read a lot of books. No drama, no movie, no play, no book, no story could ever come up with a story like this where this hero of the story is the one that makes the sacrifice in order to make himself just and at the same time to save his enemies. It's a beautiful story. Do you see the beauty in it? Never in our wildest imagination would we as human beings ever come up with something that is this beautiful. That is part of the reason why we must believe that the Bible is true. It is impossible for a human being to come up with a story like this. The gospel is breathtakingly beautiful. Praise him for not only your salvation, but the plan of salvation. This is really good stuff here. And secondly, and finally, believe in Jesus, for he is breathtakingly beautiful, and he loves you, and I hope you are able to remember that as I preached today. Believe in Jesus, for he loves you. 87 down, 346 to go, which means what? It means we're getting there. Father in heaven, Lord, I, I, I still sense that there's people that don't understand and they will try to work their way to you. Would you please reveal yourself to them so that they would understand that it is by faith in Christ alone. Grant them that faith and cause them to be saved. Lord, for those of us that know you, may we not have lazy minds, but Lord, may we study and contemplate and marvel at and delight in the glories of Calvary. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.